We're in a series right now since the first of the year. We've been talking about passion, and boy, passion is so important. You ever shake hands with somebody who had absolutely no passion at all? It's like, you, you know, jerk your hand back. Don't let that get off on me. I, I like to shake hands with people that have passion. I like to hang around people that have passion. Amen. Something matters to them. And, and understand, you know, you don't have to, it's not always in how grip you, how firmly you grip someone's hand when you shake their hand. That's not what I'm even suggesting. But there ought to be something in your life that, that you have great passion for. Because passion is the key to your breakthrough to the next level. And the Bible, this incredible book, the more I read it, the more I study it, the more I am in absolute awe of the Word of God. I mean that seriously. The more I know about it, it's like, wow. People talk about its relevancy. Is the Bible relevant for today? Well, if you ever hear anybody that says it isn't, ask them if they've ever read it. Because the more you read this, the more relevant you realize it is. Ecclesiastes 9 and 7, how's this for relevance? Seize life. Eugene Peterson's translation in conversational English, the message. Seize life. Or how about this in Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, that word therefore, as I keep emphasizing, means predicated upon what you have just learned. This should now be your response. Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why don't many people come boldly to the throne? Well, boy, there are all kind of reasons there, aren't there? Insecurities, incorrect theology, misunderstanding the nature of God and who he is, thinking God's harsh and cruel when he's actually loving and kind, being misinformed as to how to approach God. There's so many reasons that people don't come boldly to the throne. But we're instructed that we should. So I've been in this series recently, We've, we're talking the whole year about passion, but recently I've been in this series that I'm teaching you on how to have a breakthrough, and it's a result of a study that I did some years ago of all these different places in the Bible where there were great breakthroughs that occurred in people's lives, and I, for my own benefit, started looking at the Bible and got me a pen and paper, and this was before I even had my iPad, it's been that long ago, and um, just sat down and started taking notes on all the different people that I saw that had breakthroughs in the Bible and what there were that, about those breakthroughs that they shared in common, and for example, they all had vision, they knew what they wanted, they all had great passion, they certainly did that, and then I shared as I looked into the Bible, wrote the, all of this down, and, and I, I intended to share it, 
in a series then, but the Lord wouldn't let me. I wrote down what made each of these breakthroughs unique. And there were certain things about each of them that were different. Their circumstances were different. And when I finally got all this done, I thought I was going to preach it, and the Lord said, no. I don't want anybody to get the impression, it's what I sense the Holy Spirit telling me, that this is some magic formula that you can use with me anytime you decide to, like I'm God in the box or something, you know. I'm your lucky rabbit's foot or your talisman or your good luck charm, magic wand, abracadabra. Didn't want that. There's too much of a tendency on the part of some of us to think that God's Santa Claus anyway. And we live our lives like we want to and, and then whenever we need him, call on old jolly God, you know, and uh, expect him to come to our scene and uh, show up at the point where we are, arrive at our doorstep, and help us out. So I didn't want to do that, so I just put it aside and used it for my benefit. And the first of this year, the Holy Spirit really began to deal with me about this. And again, the reason I'm teaching this is not so you can use formulas, because the first requisite, as I pointed out, that all of us must have is that we must have passion for God. When you have passion for God... There are resources available to you that are, are not available to anybody else. Amen. When God is what you're after, I mean, it brings into play a field of opportunities and resources that don't exist if you're not serious about God. So why am I teaching this? I just told you why I'm not. I'm not teaching it to give you a formula. I'm teaching this rather because I want us to move beyond the limitations that we as human beings are all created with. And I've pointed out that all of us are created with limitations. We are. We, no matter how great our resources, we run out of them somewhere. Whether our resources, intellect or money or whatever, connections, family, friends. We reach the point where that's done all it can do. And that's depleted. But there is beyond human limitation a dimension that was meant to be lived in by the born-again believer. Amen. And that's that supernatural realm beyond human ability where we are empowered by the power of an almighty God. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 says this, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above what? Above. You get this? Above. Say above. above. That's that dimension beyond. Above what? All that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Don't misunderstand that. That's not saying to go get more power. It's saying that you've already got it. If you're a born-again believer, you have it living inside of you. And the next Verse says, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. How does God get glory in the church? By being within us to do more than we limited human beings are able to ask or think. When we are in that supernatural or that dimension beyond human limitations and we're living there, he gets glory out of that. Why? Everybody looking at us saying, wow, what's different about them? You say, it's all God, you know. It's a God thing. He gets glory out of that. 
What I'm saying is, is that Paul does, or is that God doesn't want us to live as Paul instructs us. He doesn't want us to live with the same limitations everyone else is living with. And this is why Paul was so chagrined, upset at the church in Corinth when they started breaking off into factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. What did he say? 1 Corinthians 3 and 3. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? See those last three words, like mere men? Say like mere men. That's neutral in gender. It could be like mere men or women is what he's intending to be understood. You mean that there's a dimension where I don't have to be like just mere people? Yeah. And Paul said when you're carnal, you're not living out the spirit and empowered life. You're living at the dimension of just mere human beings. And you're always bumping up against a ceiling. What, let me phrase it another way. What Paul is emphasizing is that only in Christ can you realize your maximized potential. Only in God can you be everything you were supposed to be. Now then, look at 1 John 10 and 10 and see if you understand that better. The thief comes not except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, I have come that you may, they may have life and that they may have it. How? That's the dimension beyond. You see? When you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, then there's a dimension that exists where you're supposed to be living that other people can't attain to. When you are filled with the power of God and his spirit, a child of God, you're not mere men or women. You're a new creation, a new creature. You have been born again. Amen. Now what are we working against? The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So the thief is trying to rob you of this. How? By making you unaware that even a dimension such as what I've described exists. So first of all, you need to think strategically. God does. We're going to pray in a moment. And I'm just setting the foundation so I can zip through this here today. Amen. Watch it now. God thinks strategically. Most of us don't. When God has somewhere he wants to go, he devises a strategy to get there. We need to learn to think the same way. Can somebody in the building say amen? amen? And so when God created you, he had a plan for your life. His strategy was to fill you with the Holy Spirit because you can then move into that realm where all things are possible instead of that realm where you're just living like mere men and women. Fallen people in a fallen world ruled by a fallen Lord. Okay? His strategy was to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's supposed to open up new dimensions to you, vistas to you, as it were. You need strategies for whatever you want to do in life. Joke, okay? Guy walks on board an airplane and it's his good luck. His seat is right beside the most beautiful woman he's ever seen in his life. He is single. He's wanting a bride. First thing he does is glance at her left hand. There's no ring there. 
He thinks this is my lucky day. He strikes up a conversation, finds out she is indeed single. He's looking. (laughs) And so that leads him to ask, well, what kind of man do you want? Are you interested in? What kind of men do you like? And she said, I like Native American men. They're tall. They're bronze colored. They're noble. They're strong. But I also like Jewish men because they're so business minded and they're so successful. But then she added she liked good old country boys too because they were so down to earth and honest. And then she said, my name is Janice. What's your name? And he thought for a minute and he said, my name is Chief Sitting Bull Goldstein. But my friends call me Bubba. (laughs) Strategy. Strategy. You got it? Father, in the name of Jesus, help us to understand heaven's strategy. Help us to know who we are. Help us to implement the strategy designed by you that we might be all we were meant to be to give you glory. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Already I've talked to you about a couple of the ways that people moved God to give them extraordinary breakthroughs. One of the things that is unique in this study too that um, is unique in this sense is that it's shared by every single one of the people that I've studied is that I think they all stumbled upon what they stumbled upon by accident. Not only did they all have vision, not only did they all have passion, I think they all stumbled upon this by accident rather than being told this is what you do. David moved God extraordinarily by having extraordinary spiritual hunger. Talked about him already. Then we talked about Abraham moved God to act extraordinarily by offering an extraordinary sacrifice. Nobody told him that this would work. He just was moved to do it. Today, let's move on. And let's talk about Hannah. She moved God by extraordinary prayer. And she had an extraordinary breakthrough. Remember the key, because these are extraordinary keys to extraordinary breakthroughs. David was extraordinary spiritual hunger. Abraham's was an extraordinary sacrifice. Hannah's is extraordinary prayer. 1 Samuel 1 and 10. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Hannah is barren. Now what she does not know And what I will point out to you is that she, in her life, was walking through what Israel was walking through as a nation. And she didn't realize that. She never connected the dots. She was barren, so was Israel. Israel had come to a place of sterility in their relationship with God. They were, for all practical purposes, backslidden. The highest spiritual office in the land was filled by a man by the name of Eli. He was the high priest and a prophet at the same time. And Eli's sons were doing terrible and wicked things that discouraged the nation of Israel from pursuing God, and Eli was condoning it. He was not addressing it. He was old. He didn't want any drama. He just wanted to live and die, go be with God, and you know, K sada, sada, whatever will be, will be, was his attitude. 
God was disturbed because Israel was not manifesting their destiny. They were not living up to the purpose for which he had created them. And so Hannah was born and she's barren. And in her life, she models what Israel is going through. And she is praying at the altar one day and she is praying in such an intensity of travail that she goes into this dimension of prayer beyond human words. And Eli, this priest who has lost even his spiritual discernment, priest and prophet, priest slash prophet as it were, sees her and has, be, has gotten so out of touch with prayer of this kind of depth that he thinks she is intoxicated in the house of God. And he walks over and if you have the King James Version, I think it says he marked her mouth. Now that word marked, where it said he marked her mouth, doesn't mean like, you know, I'm watching you. I've marked what you're, it means he marked her mouth. He slapped her. And she, upon being rebuked by him, protested, don't count me as one of these wicked women, the daughters of Belial. I'm not. In anguish of soul, I've poured my heart out before the Lord. I've poured my soul out. And God moves on that old prophet and tells him that because you have touched God with your extraordinary prayer, there's going to be an extraordinary breakthrough. You're going to have a son, and that son's going to be a Nazarite. He's not just going to be a son. He's going to be, he's going to be one of the greatest prophets Israel ever had. And he will grow up, and because she was also of the priestly tribe of Levi, the family was, he actually, Samuel, not only became prophet, he also became high priest. Now, this is what is significant. And Samuel starts hearing the voice of God as a little boy. He gets awakened by God in the middle of the night. Samuel, he thinks it's Eli calling. Did you send for me? He runs into the old man's bedroom. No, it didn't. Happens three times, and finally Eli discerns it's God speaking to this child. He's just a lad. He was touched from the, the, the time he was just a tiny guy. Wow. This is what God is prophetically demonstrating is going to happen to the nation of Israel. You're going to be visited by God, but it's going to be because people pray, and they pray in a dimension beyond what is ordinary. And if I can say it like this, sometimes the, the language does not lend itself. I'm not talking about just Hebrew either or Greek. No language lends itself to a full understanding sometimes of the nuances that can exist in one word. Because a word can have measures of degree in which it is used differently. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? Differences of degree can exist. Let me say it another way. There's praying and then there's praying. Oh, come on, help me out now. You can pray and then you can pray. Same word, but there's a big difference in degree. Amen. Hannah didn't just pray, she prayed. And she moved God and she got into a dimension where words could not articulate what she was saying. And you cannot move God extraordinarily by acting ordinary. She prayed extraordinarily. Amen. It is unfortunate that so many of God's people either fail to pray or their prayers are prayed without them reaching that point 
where they really pray. <laughs> Again, that's the inadequacy of the English language that I'm struggling with here because it's the same word and that the fact that it is the same word lends itself to all kind of confusion. Somebody says, well, I prayed. You know, why God hear that one's prayer and not mine? Maybe you prayed and they prayed. Now you're getting my point here, uh-huh. Hear what I'm saying? Prayer coupled with fasting is even more effective according to Matthew 17 and 21. This kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. The thing about it is, is that when Hannah was praying, she was in deep anguish. The Bible called it bitterness of soul. Put 1 Samuel 1 and 10 back up there. She was in bitterness of soul. You see that? She wasn't feeling good. She wasn't feeling like she was touching God. In fact, for her trouble, she even got reprimanded by the pastor. Amen. And you know what she did? She kept praying until she touched God. I love the story the rabbis tell of two businessmen who prayed daily. Both of them were busy. And both of them determined that they were going to be good Jewish men and they were going to pray. This is a story that is many, many, many years old. I shared it with you after the first of the year, but maybe you've forgotten it. I'll, I'll just mention it briefly again. So let me bring it into the modern context. I'm going to give them phones and email abilities and capabilities and all of that. The original story, that wasn't the way it was. Two businessmen, they're very, very busy, but they both want to please God, so they each determined to pray. And one man, they each set aside 15 minutes to pray, but one man, when he begins to pray 15 minutes a day, wow, he finds this is it. This is my place. This is my niche. I love prayer. He was so refreshed, rejuvenated, invigorated after prayer, so at peace, so calm, that he couldn't wait till the next day to pray again. And he began to pray longer. And finally, he was taking an hour out of every single day to pray. He loved it, couldn't wait for it. Prayer became the delight and joy of his life. The other businessman, for him, it was everything he could do to pray just 15 minutes. And the whole time he was praying, his phone was going off. I told you I'd make it modern, okay? He's getting emails, text messages. He's being distracted. He's remembering appointments he's got to go to and things he's got to do. And he's frustrated the whole time he's praying until when he finally finishes praying, every day he wonders the same thing. Am I wasting God's time? Did God even hear me? Am I doing any good at all? And the rabbis asked the question, which one of the two men was pleasing God the most? And most of us would say, it's the man that loved prayer so much that he prayed an hour every single day. You know what the rabbis say? No. That man was praying because he loved prayer. He loved the feeling he got. He was really praying for what he got out of it. The other man was praying to please God even though he wasn't getting anything out of it. Amen. This is Hannah. She's praying when she doesn't feel like it. She's in bitterness of soul. Whoa. What I'm trying to tell you is, sometimes when you think your prayers are the least effective, they might be the most effective. Hmm. 
Am I saying that you shouldn't enjoy prayer? No, I love to be with God. I love worship. I love time alone with the Lord. But this man that was so busy kept disciplining himself to set time aside to seek God even though his schedule wouldn't allow it and even though he was not receiving what he could sense or perceive to be any personal benefit out of it. And he ended up pleasing God according to the rabbis more than the guy who was having the time of his life. Now then, that's what I mean when I say there's praying and then there's praying. Anybody can pray when you feel good and you got time to do it. Oh, you're not hearing what I'm saying. But what about when your schedule's full? Or anybody can pray when they're painted into a corner and their back is against the wall and it's 2.30 in the morning and they're in an emergency room and don't know if a family member's going to live or going to die. But there's a time when you need to pray when none of that is going on. And that's what determines what happens at 2.30 in the morning. Amen. Amen. It's the prayers you pray at other times. She's in bitterness of soul. She's not feeling good. On top of that, the church is misunderstanding her. The pastor has marked her mouth, slapped her. How's that? You say, how long do I pray? You pray until there's a breakthrough. That's what she did. She prayed until there was a breakthrough. How long do you pray? Until things change. Amen, according to Hosea 10 and 12, for it is time to seek the Lord till when? Till he comes and rains righteousness on you. How long do you pray? Till, come on, I need somebody to say it. Till he comes. You're sick, how long do you pray? You don't have a job, how long do you pray? You have a problem in your family, how long do you pray? You need a miracle, how long do you pray? Till he comes, until there's a breakthrough, until you see something change. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. I love the story of Elijah. He puts his head between his knees and gets in the birthing position and prays when Israel has been in a drought for three years and prays and sends the servant to the top of the hill to see if there is anything he has noticed that is changing in the climate. And he comes back and said, there's nothing going on. He sends him six times. And on the seventh time, the man says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. How long do you pray? Till you see a cloud. That's how long you pray. Amen. Hear me when I'm telling you this. We often don't misunderstand things like I'm saying right now. We don't. We even hear teaching in the church that while well-intentioned and while people who teach this mean to do us good, they actually do us harm when they say things like, like, if you really had faith, you wouldn't keep on bothering God about that. You just pray and believe. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. And they use that very verse to say, ask and then shut up. You know, you've got faith, be quiet. That's not what Jesus is saying. He said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. That's English. The Greek is a little different. It says, ask and keep on asking. 
It says seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Amen. When I was raised in church, literally they taught this, that if you really have faith, you, you'll, you'll ask and then you'll stop asking God. Anybody else other than me have taught that same thing? Come on. Look at it. I didn't know you went to the same church I went to when I was a kid. Amen. You've changed a lot because I don't recognize you. Amen. We were told that you're supposed to pray and then be quiet. Jesus never said that. You pray when you don't feel like praying. You pray till he comes. You pray when there's no change in the circumstance. You keep on praying till you see a cloud begin to rise up out of the sea. You don't stop. In the same vein, that's why some people have even discredited divine healing and said that, ah, you can't believe in healing anymore because, you know, you're going to a, a healing campaign or meeting and somebody prays for you and you think you're healed and you get off your medication and you get sick. Uh, you know what I tell folk? You, you have diabetes and you go to a, somebody prays for you and you think you're healed, keep on taking your medicine. I upset some of you, but that's just too bad. I need to tell you the truth. You keep on taking your medicine. You know why? Wait till you see the cloud the size of the man's hand. Amen. People who pulled their children out of hospitals that were hemophiliacs, wouldn't let them have blood transfusions, all kind of stuff, and, and children have died and discredited the church all because they had a lack of teaching. I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about God's church at large. When do you, when do you stop? When, you don't run from the... Elijah did not stop praying and run to the city until he saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. And when if you are sick and you get prayed for, you begin to thank God, keep on praying until your healing manifests itself. Oh, I'm preaching here this, this morning. Somebody in the building shout hallelujah. This will help you, will help you. You're saying I shouldn't claim what I, I, I have been prayed for to receive. No, you claim it. But keep, I'm not getting off my blood pressure medication. If I have high blood pressure, just keep on. Then have a stroke. I got prayed for, I have cancer. I don't even need to be, see the doctor anymore. I really hope that's the case. But all I know is I'm waiting for my cloud the size of a man's hand. And apparently God doesn't mind because that's consistent with what Elijah did and it's the instruction that Jesus gave. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. If you knock at somebody's door, when do you stop? when they open the door. Knock, then you stop. Three weeks later, they come back from vacation, you're standing there. Well, I knocked. No, you keep on knocking. Amen, somebody in the building say, I understand, would you do that? Extraordinary. Prayers move God extraordinarily. There's a second ex extraordinary key that I want to cover today, and that's Paul and Silas move God through extraordinary worship. Look at them. 
in Acts 16 in the Philippian jail where they had been beaten. Their backs are covered with stripes, raw and wounded. Their feet and their hands are in manacles and chains. And at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Hmm, hmm, I like that. At the midnight hour, when their backs are raw, when everybody else would have given up, they're still worshiping God. And the prisoners heard them. Can I talk to you like a pastor this morning? What's the matter with us that we're becoming so politically correct we don't want the prisoners to hear us anymore? Amen. Afraid to take a stand on anything that the Bible teaches because the prisoners might misunderstand. It's the prisoners that need to hear us. Uh, I'm not talking about being crude and ugly. Used to in the church, people had such a bad judgmental attitude. No wonder so many people rejected the church because the church taught truth but without love. I would go so far as to say that truth without love is still false doctrine. I don't care how much Bible you teach. If it's not mixed with love, it's not truth. Because it, truth is not some scripture in the Bible. Truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You hear what I'm saying? The truth is an individual. There are all these questions about lifestyles and different ones, you know, and afraid to say this, that, or the other. And, and I'm going to just tell you, just, just take your stand on the word of God. Don't make a distinction between one or the other and say this one's okay, but that one's really bad. And uh, uh, Look, we're all sinners and need God. Can I tell you that sinners felt comfortable around Jesus? How do I know it? Because the Bible said they did. He was a friend of publicans and sinners. The tragedy is sometimes sinners are the ones that are the last to want to go to church because they've been made to feel uncomfortable because we've judged. You don't need to judge. Just take your stand on the word of God. Let the prisoners hear you proclaim that God is God, that the word is truth. Just love God and love people. And worship. And worship. In your midnight hour, worship. When your back is burning, worship. When you're beat down and don't feel like it, worship. When you don't want to worship God anyway. Amen. They worshiped. I've told you there are three dimensions in worship. If you would, please, put the tabernacle up there. Because the tabernacle is a beautiful, as it were, overview of what these three dimensions consist of. This is a diagram of the tabernacle. To the left is an illustrated drawing. You see the courtyard surrounded by this fence. And then there's a tent. Inside the tent, there are two compartments. Now, here on the right-hand side, you will see the rectangular shape is actually that fence. There at the entrance, there's a gate. Then there's a courtyard. In the courtyard, you will see there's the altar of burnt offerings. 
There's a brazen laver. And then you come to this tent. And inside the tent, as I mentioned, there are two compartments or dimensions. And the first is the altar of showbread on the right, the golden candlestick on the left, and then the altar of incense. Then you come to the veil, which separates the first compartment from the, separate, uh, from the second. Now, inside the second compartment is the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Now, these are the three dimensions of the tabernacle. There's the outer court, there's the holy place, and there's the most holy place. Now, somebody said, are there really three or two? There are three, and I'll tell you why. It's because the rest of the nation of Israel was outside that fence. And so what happened is the priestly family could come inside and they could go to the first um, dimension, the outer court, and then some of them would go into the second dimension, which was the first compartment of the tent, and their priestly performance of duties but that last compartment, only the high priest went there once a year, and that was on Yom Kippur to offer the sacrifice of atonement, pour the blood on the mercy seat. These three dimensions describe what happens in church on Sunday morning. Psalms 100 says, enter his gates. The gate pointed toward the east. That's that door down at the bottom of this diagram. Enter his gates with thanksgiving into his courts. That's that second dimension, or rather the first dimension. Enter his courts with praise. How do you get in to this first dimension? Thanksgiving. Enter his, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Come into his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. But then there's a dimension beyond that. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. That's where you start moving into that next dimension. And so I, if I can say it like this, the first dimension is thankfulness. You don't even get into the first dimension unless you can be thankful for God and what he's doing in your life. So right away, you got some bad stuff going on, button it up. <laughs> Somebody asked me the other day, how you doing? I said, I'm doing great. I said, if I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you. Who wants to hear it anyway, you know? <laughs> Come on, you understand what I mean? Some folk. You don't ask them. I've learned certain individuals do not ask them how they're doing. Not unless you have 45 minutes for an organ recital. And by organ recital, I don't mean a pipe organ. I mean liver, heart, kidneys, that kind of organ. Amen. So some folk, instead of saying, how you doing? I say, praise the Lord. Isn't God good? Amen. You got that? I just helped some of you and you didn't know. You, you'd get that kind of information in church this morning, did you? Okay, you don't even get anywhere without being thankful. So no matter what's going on in your life, be thankful. The second dimension is praise. There are seven Hebrew words that are translated into the English word praise. So praise is more than one thing. For example, clapping of the hands is one of the words. Shouting with a voice is one. Amen. Bowing is another. Okay? All of these are words for praise. Dancing, singing, all of these are words for praise. Amen. They're translated praise in the Bible. And then you come to that last dimension, and that's where the glory is at. Oh. 
Now, if you want to really move God, don't try to do it outside in the courtyard. Don't try to do it in the second dimension. Work your way into the third dimension where the glory is at, where the Ark of the Covenant is at, the Shekinah, the Shekinah, the manifest presence of God. Amen. That is to say there's a difference in praise and worship. And I'm sorry that most of us were socialized into a church context that did not teach us the difference. Most of us were taught praise and worship are synonyms. They're not synonyms. They do not mean the same thing. Praise is what you do until you get in worship. Worship is when God shows up. Amen. And when he steps in the room, oh, I know there are folk out there saying, I just don't see that. I, until you've ever been in that third dimension, you can't see it. But if you ever get there, nobody even has to explain it to you because you will know it for yourself. Amen. Amen. Jesus said this in St. John. This is what he says in chapter 4, verse 24. God is a spirit. What? Read it with me. Who what? Worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, okay? You don't get to define what worship is. If you're gonna worship him, you must worship according to what he has instructed. Now, I love the word translated worship there. It's the Greek word proskuneo. The Greek word proskuneo is an interesting word. They're gonna put it up on the screen. And what it means is to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. That's from Strong's Concordance. All right. How many of you have a little house dog? Anybody? Okay, right over here. What's, what kind of dog do you have? Yes. What? A Malty? I'm not hearing. A Malty something. Okay, y'all got it anyway, even if I can't hear it up here. Amen, amen. Somebody else have one, a multi, whatever. And I'm sure it's a beautiful dog. Chihuahua, chihuahua baby. Hey, there we, that one I know real well. The multi, it's, it's, that's kind of exotic for me. Okay, Jack Russell, I know that one too. Anybody else? Pekingese? What a dashing weenie dog. Amen. When you come home after being gone a while, what happens? That little dog. And you open the door and it runs down the hardwood hallway and it tries to make the corner and it slides. Y'all know what I'm saying, right? And it runs up and it's so excited to see you. When you reach down, what does it start doing? Licking your hand. That is the picture of worship. God wants you to be so excited when he shows up. You Now, some people don't know what I'm saying. 
Some folk think that praise is worship. So they get loud. They confuse it. Worship is not how loud you get. It's how you feel about him. When he shows up, he's everything. It's about God. It's not how, oh, I'm so, I, I love church. I felt so good. Uh, I want to make God feel good. That's what real worship is. I'm done. I'm finished. Paul and Silas worshiped and God sent an earthquake and shook the prison until the doors sprang open. Anybody need a breakthrough? Anybody need a breakthrough? You can pray or you can pray. You hear what I'm saying? I'm not in any way trying to communicate to you that you can earn a breakthrough in the kingdom. You can't. But I am telling you there is that dimension that is beyond where we as mere men live. And you choose. Do you want to spend the rest of your life tied down to this level of mediocrity, ordinary mundaneness? Do you want to be usual and complacent the rest of your life? You want to just suck it up and tolerate it and live and at the end die and walk off this terrestrial globe to whatever your reward may be? Or do you want to live while you're here? Do you want to make a mark that when you're gone, somebody knew you pass by? Oh, hear what I'm saying. Don't be content to live as mere men or women. If you want a breakthrough, these breakthroughs are not designed to just get you out of trouble. They're designed to break through into that dimension of life that God has waiting for you that the enemy doesn't want you to know anything about. Tell somebody too late. What do I mean by that? He can't steal it from you now because you've already learned.